0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and today I am thrilled to be in dialogue with Dr. Rob Eschman. He is Associate Professor at Columbia University's School of Social Work. Today, we will be discussing his newly published book, when the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age, published in Berkeley by University of California Press, 2023. Rob, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and looking forward to our conversation.
0: To begin, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, what aspects of your life story and life journey inspired the scholar you would become and the scholarship
1: you do today. Wow, that is uh, you know, how much how much time do we have if I'm if I'm getting into my life story. So, you know, my um um I'm from Chicago, um, you know, born and raised on the north side of Chicago in a neighborhood that we called the North Pole. Um, and you know, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black and Latino, um, and you know, a big immigrant population. And I think that I, you know, I grew up around a lot of cultures. Um, and so that's that's certainly part of my story. Um, I grew up a, in a family where, you know, my so my sister is actually an author who's written five children's books. And uh, right now that I've written a book, I can join the club and say, OK, now there are multiple siblings who have written a book. And, uh, you know, the, the story that I like to tell is that when we were young, my mother would read The Chronicles of Narnia to my sister and I. Um, and, and I attribute my love of reading to the the time spent, you know, with family going through these books, um, and I, you know, so I grew up in a household where reading was encouraged, and I, I you know, I think that I, I fell in love with reading. Taking English and literature classes as a youngin were the first. You know, this is the the first places where I think I started to realize, like, oh, I can do school. Um, you know, or, or, or school can be fun is when I was able to just talk and, and, and think about books, which is something that I would, you know, I'd be reading for fun. So I think that, you know, in terms of, of landing as an academic, this is a, really a profession where you just have to be, you know, good at reading and writing um, and, and thinking. And I think that that is something that comes from, you know, my hobbies as a kid and, 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 you know, reading with my mother, she used to take my sister and I to the bookstore every day after school. And that's just where we would do our work, our homework. Once we finished homework, we were allowed to read whatever we wanted. Um, and so we could use that almost like a library in a sense. Um, so, so I, so I do, I do see kind of influences in the home there. Um, and then, you know, um, the the story I actually starts within the book as I talk about how the first time I was called the N word was when I was playing um, video games online as a college student, and so of course I think my love for video games and the time that I've spent on the internet um, is also something that I would have to point to in terms of the origins of this book and my upbringing. That I just have had experiences online that did not, um, you know, seem to fit the ways that people talked about race and racism as becoming more subtle and and less aggressive um, in the years following the the classic civil rights movement. Um, and so I think that 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 you know uh, those experiences are part of, of what what drove me to ask the big questions of this book of trying to make sense of how online communication or or online technologies are changing the way that we experience, understand, and respond to racism.
0: Can you summarize your book for us? What are the core themes and messages that you convey?
1: Yeah, so, um in the first part of the book, I talk about um, what racism has looked like over the past 75 years, and so the right the title of the book is When the Hood Comes Off. Um, and the 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 hood here, um, you know, I'm, I'm using the metaphor of the Ku Klux Klan's hood, which hid the faces of the um, you know, the, the, the folks who are who, you know, were engaging in domestic terrorism and, and destroying pr- property and lives and, and doing harm to people and it protected their identities. And, and I use this metaphor of the hood to refer to the way that racism um, hides its face through subtlety or has been hiding its face with subtlety since the, you know, the end of the Jim Crow laws with the classical civil rights movement. So before the civil, you know, before, uh, you know, during the Jim Crow era, racism was open. It was in your face. People were not embarrassed to be racist because racism was the law of the land. Um, But when racism became illegal, when discrimination became illegal, then racism could no longer show its face without people getting in trouble. And so this led to, you know, um, policies cannot be explicitly racist, but how is it that they are subtly, um, you know, reinforcing, you know, racial inequality? Um, people cannot be explicitly racist and keep their jobs in HR, but then through microaggressions or subtle racial slights, they still communicate to folks of color that we, you know, you do not belong here. You are not... Um, fully included here. And so the first part of the book is about examining mask, what I call masked racism or racism, you know, uh, under, that is hiding behind a hood, racism that is hiding behind subtlety and understanding the ways that, that you know, on a structural level, on an inter- interpersonal level, how, what racism looks like um, in a, in a world that, that claims to be colorblind or claims to be past the problem of racism. Um, and then, and then also, and um, examining how online communication can remove the hood, can take the hood off, can unmask racism by revealing the hidden mechanisms of racism, the the ways that racism can be embedded in everyday interactions that that are you know on a surface level can be friendly, um, and so that's the first part of the book is looking at, at at what does racism look like and how is online communication changing people's experiences with racism, and then in the second half of the book I look at resistance. And the focus is on how folks of color are using digital tools in order to challenge and combat racism in new and innovative and exciting ways that really can shift the, the power dynamics, right, where folks who may have felt like um, or may feel like they are silenced and speaking out against racism in everyday face-to-face conversations, feel more empowered to do so in online spaces. And I think that that is having a profound change on how we as you know as a our society as a whole um, thinks and uh, thinks about and understands racism.
0: Although our listeners might not be able to see it, can you explain what your front cover depicts? Can you explain and interpret the image on the front cover? For
1: us? Yes, yes, I can. Um, so the front cover has the image of a Ku Klux Klan hood. Um, and then at the bottom of the hood, you have silhouetted um, um, activists who who are challenging racism. Um, and it really, to me, it, it is a it is a cover that, um, you know, I, 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 I um, you know, I, I really kind of worked hard and 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 um you know with the artists and bringing bringing that vision to life I really wanted it to depict both the hood but then also resistance and as I'm describing with the themes it's very important to me that this is not just a book about racism this is a book about fighting back against racism and I wanted the cover to to show both sides of that theme that that, that, that we are revealing the face of racism and and you know it's a it's a scary image to see the Ku Klux Klan hood and may be the most you know, emblematic um, visual of racism in the United States. Um, but then I also write that is not the end of the story, which is why um, so central to that image are the people who are who are fighting back against racism um, on the bottom. What forms
0: of anxiety and depression do victims of online racism suffer from? What can be done to address the harm suffered by victims of online racist abuse?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that we for a long time have known that racism does harm to our health. Folks of color die too soon, all right. Black folks die too soon. Um, I think that right, the experiences with racism predict increased depression, increased anxiety. Um, increased stress. Um, and, you know, there's all kind of health research that that that, that looks at other health outcomes as related to, um, you know, experiences with racism. And what we're finding now is that online racism has sim- very similar effects. That, uh, you know, in, in my own survey, there's not a big difference between online racism and in-person racism in terms of the effects that it has on anxiety, depression, and stress. And so I think that, that uh, racism hurts wherever it's coming from. And you know uh, well, I, I'm not trying to make the case in the book that online racism somehow hurts more than in-person racism, but I am making the case that online racism can be different than in-person racism and can sometimes be uh, a little bit more common, is that if you think about the type of racism that people experience in face-to-face settings, it is typically in mainstream settings more subtle. That you don't have people calling you the N-word, you have people asking you for your ID, right? And one of the stories I tell in chapter five is right about a, a couple different times that I have been carded uh, on campus. And when I say carded, I mean people asking me to show identification to prove that I belong there when other folks who are in those same spaces are not asked to show ID. So that is a subtle way of telling me, hey, you as a Black person um, are not welcome here. But that's a little bit different than online people saying, hey, I don't want to see black people in this form. You need to leave. And it's just being more explicit and in your face. So that is uh, uh, um, I think that, that that part of what I'm doing is, is uh, exploring the differences in styles of expressions of racism and how they have different impacts. And so both styles, whether it's subtle or overt, have negative impact on health and mental health. But what happens online is that people are surprised by what they see, that when they experience such violent expressions of racism, it can make them realize that the world is not what they thought it was, that they may have seen racism as being a problem that was limited to folks who are ignorant who have a different political perspective um folks are right like that that you know at, at, if you're at a liberal university you may assume that the people who are racist are conservatives um you assume that that you know that that that, that um if they voted uh for obama that they're not racist and what happens online is right or you know uh, i'm in chapter four i talk about a Um, Chapter four of the book, I talk about um, a online campus based website at a liberal university where students were posting messages anonymously that were horribly racist. And it was so surprising to the student body because you had to be a student in order to post. And it was the first time for them that they're realizing that this online ugliness that we see and has become normalized um, is not limited to to the South is not limited to uh, people who you would, you know, call ignorant or uneducated or backwards. And it had to, it changed their idea of racism to realize like, no, racism also lives here at this liberal campus where, you know, we thought that because we're all academics and serious about our studies, that we were beyond the race problem. And so it's a, it's an, a, you know, kind of a worldview changing eye-opener for many people.
0: How can readers of your book become more ethical internet users in light of your findings and in light of your research
1: yeah so i think um one of the you know what one of the important messages for me um the research on microaggressions says that the most common way to respond to microaggressions is to just not respond and i think most of us when we witness racism we don't say or do anything about it Right. Other research shows that more people say they would respond when they see racism than actually do in, you know, in practice. And, you know, some of the, 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 the things that um, are, were most empowering, some of the most empowering things that I found in the book are that when when people witness someone else challenge racism, they feel supported. They feel like they are not alone in that moment. Um, and I think that that is something for, you know, that I hope that, that folks take to heart is, you know, uh, um, is that when when you see racism, don't let it slide. Right. And especially right when you're an online user and someone is saying something problematic, don't let it be. Go ahead and say something um, and 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 be a part of the communal response to racism so that it's never one person against, you know, the race. It's, it's always a community of people against something that's racist in a way that, 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 um, you know, keeps folks of color from feeling like they're alone and fighting a battle by themselves. And so I think that that is, that is a, uh, you know, a, um, you know, Part of what I found in the book that can be so empowering is that for people who decide to take the challenge on and decide that they are going to use their online platforms um, to, you know, to expose racism and to challenge racism, that those people have a big impact on the on the folks around them. And when I say people using their platforms, I'm not talking about the famous people who have a million followers. I'm talking about a regular everyday people who, in their networks, are developing reputations for being critical thinkers about race. And they have a bigger impact than they may be realizing. That some of them, you know, get to you know understand their impact when they're receiving messages of, of folks thanking them, saying, "Hey, thank you for having these conversations." And others may just be talking to their community without realizing, you know, how deeply they are impacting the way that people think.
0: How does your book advance our understanding of trauma?
1: Um, that is a great question. Um, I think that that you know, I I I don't explore trauma as a as a as a concept, but I do deal with, right. I do explore events that are, have been traumatic. And and what I do with those events is I try to understand um, how people react to traumatic events um, and how they, they impact their understandings of the world. And so as an example of that um, in a, you know, in, in chapter seven, where I look at activism, I explore Um, a young activist who is fighting uh, um, back against a racist event that happened on campus where a fraternity organized a racist party. And for this student, um, they were not only traumatized by the party, um, they were also traumatized by the administrative response. They were traumatized by the fact that the school did not have their back and did not seem to... um, you know uh, 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 um, uh you know uh, to 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 support um the the change that that they felt was needed um, they were traumatized by their grades going down and feeling like okay I just lost it right like now I've hurt my um you know my academic well-being has suffered because I'm the one fighting back instead of the school being the one fighting back and so this is an experience with trauma that made that student shy away from activism when they realized they had to right that they they felt like they had to choose themselves over the struggle because it there was such a high emotional um uh, you know and academic cost of the time that they spent for this battle that they did not see a lot of fruit from um and then on the other side of it right we have folks who um, you know, right? So the, that, that that's that's one form of trauma is trauma by by seeing institutions not live up to the standards. And then, right? So that is why it's so important when you have online activists who don't wait for institutions and gatekeepers to say, okay, now it's time for us to collectively fight against racism. And those folks are doing it themselves. And what they're doing is they are, um, you know, they, they are potentially helping others in the community and preventing the type of trauma that occurs when people experience racism and then are left with the feeling of, and there's nothing I can do about this, right? The, the- that folks wanna have hope, folks want to be able to feel like they can fight back against a problematic idea. And I think that that's something that happens with activists who are you know, engaging in this work that that is protective um, for the community and that proves to the community that this is not a fight that cannot be fought or not a fight where we have to wait for a savior. It's a fight that we can engage in every day um, amongst ourselves.
0: Can you explain the term color mute? What does it signify? Can you explain the differences between the term "color mute" and the term "color blind"?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think the terms are very, very uh, closely related. Although they are right, they come from from different um, researchers. Uh, so, "color blind" um, is a term that comes from uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, and he writes about um, um, he 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 right, the colorblind ideology is um, the dominant form. Of thinking about race in the US. And it basically refers to under, uh, explaining or understanding racialized phenomena in non, right, in, in colorblind ways. And so you explain racial inequality by something that is unrelated to race. And what that does is it justifies and legitimates that racial race, racial inequality. So, you, right? If someone asks, hey, why are there so many Black people in prison? It's not because the system is racist. It's not because Black folks are over policed. It's not because Black folks are given um, longer sentences for the same crime. It's not because of the cash bail system that keeps black folks imprisoned um, and really punishes the poor, people who can't pay the bail in order to get out of prison and have to right end up signing a plea deal in order to get out to keep their jobs and their families and their homes. It's because black people commit more crimes than white people. So that would be a colorblind uh, um, uh, you know, way of being racist is to imply that this difference in outcome, differences in incarceration rates is due to. Um, a cultural or individual level failures, and not due to a systemic level bias. And so that right, that that is uh right. So any idea, so uh, right according to kind of a, a um, the colorblind uh, framework, um, racism is an idea that justifies or legitimates racial inequality. That you don't have to hate black people, but if you say black people are more criminal and that's why they're behind bars, and we don't need to um, reform our our you know, um, criminal justice system, that is racist because that idea continues the racial oppression that Black folks face at the hands of the criminal justice system. So that's what uh, colorblind racism refers to. And then color mute is a term that comes from Mika uh, Pollock, And that refers to people just not, right, it's very closely related to colorblind uh, uh, racist theory, because it refers to people who um, are dealing with something that very clearly and explicitly relates to race, but choose not to mention race when they're talking about it. And so the examples from, from um, that book come from schools where teachers will talk about how, oh, these students are have been acting up and uh, more students have been going to detention, when really it's only black students have been going to detention and they're not they're not naming the fact that there is a racial component to these trends and what that what both of those things do colorblind racism and color muteness is it allows language to overlook the fact that racial inequality is happening and by not naming it it allows that inequality those injustices to continue without being recognized or challenged and so again that relates directly to the theme of the book which is that when we unmask racism Right when we reveal racism, that we are better able to show it and to demonstrate how it works, um, and and only right and, and and the change can only come after we name the problem. And so that's why racists fight so hard to try and hide racism is because once we see it, then we're going to be able to point it out to other people and you know recruit them to the side of anti-racist thought and action. What is the
0: du- digital dualism fallacy? Can you elaborate on this concept?
1: Yeah, so um, really, it refers to people seeing online uh, behaviors or interactions as being completely separate from reality, um, and and it's 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 kind of a way of minimizing the importance of you know um, kind of our online lives on 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 the real world, um, and the right it, it's seen as a fallacy because really the two are connected in a way that we cannot uh, separate them. Um, I think that when I started studying um, racism online, right, a big uh, right, a, a, a you know part of what I wanted to understand is what does online racism tell us about the real world? And I got some pushback from my department, um, you know, where I was a PhD student because folks were saying, "Hey, you know, like we don't need to like you don't want to be known as the video games guy or the guy who studies online stuff," and so maybe. Don't let that be your dissertation project. And I think that 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 for me, you know, I came to the realization that we can't study youth without studying technology. We have to understand that technology is such an integral part of their lives that without even if you're not doing an internet study, you have to. You know, take into account what youth are doing online, and I think that that is right. Right at the core of the digital dualism fallacy is right, like or, or the way that we point out that it's a fallacy is to acknowledge that our lives are part digital and part, um, you know, physical, and we don't need to. Um, Uh, uh, Right. We need to acknowledge that the two are not completely separated in order to have a complex understanding of, you know, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the ways that we live.
0: What forms does cultural appropriation take
1: on the Internet?
0: What are some examples? Can you expand on this?
1: Oh, my goodness. I think that the, you know, the list is never ending. Some of the more recent examples I've seen. So cultural appropriation is when people from the dominant group take styles or cultures of a subordinate group and use them for profit. Um, It's a, it's, it's a little bit different because then just, you know, borrowing things cult you know, from different cultures, because there's an element of of power there. There's a power dynamic where it is the folks who are in power, taking away from something from folks who right who, who have been, you know, um, oppressed in some way. And so one example would be dances. on tiktok that there are numerous examples of black youth coming up with a dance that then um, becomes popular right like that that is then uh, uh becomes popular when white youth with bigger platforms use it and then the white youth become rich right they, they make they literally make money off of this dance that someone else created and then right you have the um, um, sometimes what has happened is that the black creators of that dance go unacknowledged and don't profit off of, you know, what was their creation. So that would be an example of cultural appropriation. Um, and, and, uh, um, and so I think that that, that is something that um, we see online and online, uh, excuse me, online, um, you know, that lots of activists have pointed out examples of cultural appropri- cultural appropriation, but that is not a phenomena that begins with online communication. It's something that has been happening for decades, maybe for centuries. um, and, And it's something that, that, you know, is, is becoming a, a, you know, a kind of a, a buzz, a buzz term now because of online activists pointing out the ways that it, you know, has become so common, um, you know, in, in you know, uh, among, among different well-known folks online, you know, kind of big names or, you know, just uh, online users. I
0: love social media platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter or internet companies such as Google responded to abuse that takes place in their midst what are the strengths and weaknesses of their responses how have their policies been implemented how are they notified of concerns to what degree are they profiting from the abuse that takes place on their very platforms Hmm. what should these platforms be doing differently
1: that is a great question i think that um Different platforms have had different responses, and I think that they are always changing and always evolving. Uh, it is it is difficult to fully understand what it is that they're, they're doing. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. So, for example, um, you know, on on both Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, I've heard about uh, um, black activists being banned for things that they say um, being anti-white when they're talking about racism so they're not necessarily targeting white people uh, right or white individual but they're talking about um, how whiteness is connected to, um, you know, white supremacy, and then those things are being banned. When you can also do searches for the N word on Twitter and find out that rather right, there there are users who use the N word who are not banned. So sometimes it doesn't necessarily make sense where these bans come from. That you know, violent language that is violently anti-racist can be banned um, sometimes more quickly than actual you know um, racist content. Um, I know that you know, kind of one of the prominent examples of of this is is, um, you know, a, a couple of years ago when Palestine was going viral, and people were sharing lots of footage from Palestine of 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 um, violence that was happening, that you know, uh, you know, I, I personally, someone on my, you know, one of my friends was posting stories of what was happening and then posted a screenshot. Of Instagram telling her you are no longer allowed to post on this subject. And so in that in, in that instance this was uh, the algorithm was keeping folks from being able to post uh, violence that was happening on the ground. And afterwards Facebook came out and apologized and said that was the algorithmic error. But it's the type of thing that right you don't have to be a conspiracy theory theorist to question whether that was an error or whether that was intentional. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there are new stories of this happening all the time um, of people pointing out ways, right? There are black TikTok users who, who are pointing out ways that they are being, um, you know, they're deplatformed. There are lots of activists who talk about being shadow banned where they're not getting any kind of a, a formal censure. But they noticing that they notice an immediate and steep drop in views for things that they post, which seems to indicate that the platform uh, um, somehow made made it harder for people to see their content. And so, you know, all these things are right. So it's so, right. So um, I think that this is not just about right. So on one hand, um, you have all the platforms, um, you know, until Elon with Twitter and kind of changing things a little bit, kind of having a oh, we don't we don't like hate speech policy um but then right we also see that the moderation sometimes affects activists more than it seems to affect racists um and then and then and then this leads us to you know it's a little bit worrisome for me when i think about right one of the strengths of social media is that it allows activists re- regular everyday people to reach the masses to reach their communities without oversight from institutional or mainstream gatekeepers like you know, journalists, news media sites, um, mainstream institutions. But right, uh, the danger is that when social media companies themselves become the gatekeepers, that there is potential for slowing down the speed at which regular people can can reach the masses um, through hashtags or going viral or through online um, activists trying to 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 share information. Um, and so that, you know, I think that that's one of the dangers and that's something that is is evolving and and, you know, um, it's hard to tell what direction it's going in. So on one hand, you have, you know, a, a, a Twitter seeming to want to move closer towards radical free speech, um, with you know, and being inclusive of hate speech. And then you have places, um, you know, like Facebook and Instagram, where they they have not taken things that far, and that they still want to have it be a platform where hate speech is not allowed. But in practice, it does not always look that way.
0: Can you explain the term misogynoir? What does it mean? Where does it come from? And how does it apply to understanding online racism?
1: Yeah, it's a term that was coined by Moya Bailey. It refers to the type of racism that is specific to black women. Um, I learned about it from a presentation uh, by Leslie Jones at a, at a sociology conference way back in 2017. um, um, And it kind of about black women's knowledge production. I think that, um, you know, you you do see racism online that is targeted directly at black women, and I think that misogynoir is um, an effort to to highlight the fact that black women are you know uh, um, you know we we take an intersectional analysis to understanding racism that 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 black women face the brunt of racism and sexism in society, and all right they they face. Um, types of racism that can be ignored if you don't think about gender when you're looking at racism. And they face types of sexism that are ignored um, by, you know, kind of mainstream white feminists who think more about the ways that white women experience sexism than about the ways that black women experience sexism. And so for black women who are often left out of conversations on both of those ends, Misogynor is is explicitly bringing attention back to the ways that racism and sexism intersect, um, to target Black women specifically.
0: How much is known of perpetrators of hatred and racism online? What are the most identifiable characteristics?
1: Ooh, that is a good one. I, you know, I don't know that I can say what the most identifiable characteristics of are the perpetrators. Um, partly because one of the characteristics of online communication is that it provides uh, um, or easier access to, to anonymity, that folks can be anonymous online. They can use a fake username profile so that no one can tell who is the perpetrator behind that act, and I think that that's part of, um, you know, what what you know allows folks to be so brazen online is knowing that they are not going to face consequences at work because they are hiding their identity. They may be using a VPN. They didn't use their real email address when signing up for a social media account. Um, and so we don't necessarily have the identities of the people who are behind uh, racism. Sometimes we can't right like, like some racism is coming from bots and uh, right We may or may not know who is creating the bots. I think that there, there are times when people have identified, oh, this is a kind of a Russian bot you know misinformation campaign but that's not all racism online so i think that that's part of the difficulty um part of the conundrum is realizing that that anyone anywhere could be behind some of these online racist messages and that is is part of what can make us be so wary and 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 really cause online racism to be something that that wakes people up to how You know, prevalent racism is in the world is realizing um, that these things can come from your neighbors as as easily as they can come from someone who is a member of a white supremacist organization.
0: What is meant by the term social anonymity? Can you elaborate on how this concept helps us us understand online racism and how it applies in the online world?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. Because when I'm when I'm referring to anonymity, you have multiple types. One is actual technical anonymity, where there's no way something can be traced to you when you post it online. But social anonymity refers to when people are not anonymous, their username is attached, their real names are attached to what they're saying online, but they feel like they're anonymous because they are posting it online. They feel like they are speaking in private, even when their online statements are public. And so this idea of social anonymity um, refers to people who behave in ways as if they were anonymous because they feel like their online behaviors are more distant from real world um, consequences and leads them to maybe be a little bit more honest in the way that they talk about race and racism.
0: What can you tell us about the similarities and differences between expressions of anti-Semitism, as expressions of Islamophobia, expressions of anti-Asianism in comparison and contrast with expressions of anti-Black racism? How can an Asian Muslim, Asian or Jewish reader of your book concerned about these other forms of hatred in the US and on the internet? Benefit from the findings in your research.
1: Yeah, I you know so the book does not just deal with anti-black racism, right? That I right, I, I do talk about anti-Semitism, anti-Asian hate, Islamophobia, and I think that uh, um, when we when um, you know when I'm when I'm talking about racism online, I'm talking about racism in a broad sense. I'm talking about racism that intersects with homophobic content, anti-Semitic content, and and right for all the isms, we see folks being a little bit more comfortable. Um, naming their hate and being open about their hate online than they are in person and I think that also that right the 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 people who are driving the anti-racist conversations online um, are engaged in in all these uh, you know uh, um, different forms of 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 challenging hatred and so right uh, uh, you know in the last chapter of the book I I look at trends and ha- and uh, um, key- where I use keyword searches to look at trends and um, you know usage of certain keywords over a ten year period. Um, and so, for example, one of them is the model minority. So, the model minority myth is this idea that Asians that uh, right Asians are the ideal minority because they work hard, they're not lazy, and that is seen as being in contrast to black and Latino um, um, immigrants. And so that's this idea of the, right, that's the model minority myth. And although this maybe seem like something that, oh, this is positive for Asians, that this is something that does harm to Asian folks who, you know, one, if they're not successful, they feel like they are, you know, failing by not living up to this model minority standard, but then also it creates division between, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, um, under, you know, or minoritized uh, racial groups. And so, if you look at the usage of the model, the term "model minority," it exploded in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one as discussions of stop Asian hate were also exploding online. And so, as you have these discussions of the increase in anti Asian violence that was taking place during COVID. And that also led to increased discussions of the model minority myth, that folks online were exposing one form of, of anti-Asian hate, which is violence and using that conversation to bring attention to another form of anti-Asian hate, which is the perpetration of stereotypes against Asians right through the model minority myth and so right i do try to engage in 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 complex discussions of you know opp- oppressive ideas towards multiple racial groups and i think that you know i i think that 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 you know the the ideas that I'm that I'm that I'm talking about, and when the hood comes off, expose how racism and oppression operate. Exposes the connection between everyday microaggressive comments, which uh, you know can be the scaffolding to more systematic and uh, systemic uh, modes of you know uh, um, of, of oppression from policies to you know um, the interpersonal. Can you explain W. E. Boy's concept of the veil? What does it mean? What
0: kinds of phenomena does, does it help to illuminate? And how does it apply to the age of the internet?
1: That is a great question. So the um, um, Du Bois uses the term the veil to refer to a separation between the black world and the white world. And it's this idea that, um, you know, black folks can see through the veil and see how the white world operates. They have to understand the white world in order to survive, that the white supremacy is the law of the land. And if they don't understand the way the white world operates, they literally cannot live. On the other hand, the way that black folks experience and understand the world um, is hidden from white people um, who do not need to understand those things in order to survive. And so it's hidden behind what Du Bois calls the veil. And so the black ability, right, black folks' ability to see both sides of the veil is part of this idea of double consciousness, um of, of of you know black folks living with this um contradiction in their head of like on one hand they are american on the other hand they are oppressed and that leads to kind of the error prevents them from having a singular consciousness of this this um you know it's a, it's an infliction of being forced to understand on an intimate level what what white folks think of you is something that can prevent black folks from being able to uh, um you know have Whole conceptions of themselves according to the voice, um, and so I think, how does that relate to the the online world? Um, in in chapter six, it's right. I, I talk about something I call double sided consciousness, and in the uh, right, this is the the way that um, black folks online are subverting white supremacy by naming it and ridiculing it, and and collectively um, rejecting. Um you know, um white ways of uh, what, you know, um, um problematic uh, um, um you know, forms of white supremacy, from behaviors to stereotypes. To you know, uh, um, cultural values in ways that are rejecting you know the ideas that can lead to double consciousness and are you know you know exposing for the world to see what they think of this prejudice of these prejudiced attitudes um, and so I see that as being something that um, exposes right is bringing the secrets on the uh, 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 you know from the veil to the mainstream is that right Black folks who are communicating to each other on Black Twitter. Um, this is also something that the world can see. And right, and, and I think that that is something that, that has been powerful, that the world is able to see how Black folks are analyzing uh, the systems that are oppressing them in a way that that is powerful and can wake others up to how the world works by sharing that knowledge.
0: To what degree are therapists, parents, teachers, and social workers trained, equipped, and educated to respond to the phenomenon of online racism? What are they doing and what should they be doing?
1: You know, I cannot speak for every training program because I'm sure that there are classes now about how, how do you expo- how do you respond to cyberbullying. But one thing that I found is that whether or not they're trained, that practitioners um, often innovate more quickly than their instructors do. Um, and this is you know the first project I did that looked at online behaviors um, explored uh, um, violence. And we looked at um, how right right, in, in, in high violent neighborhoods, how do violent prevention workers think about using the Internet in their work? And what we found was before there were any papers written on the subject that these violent prevent, violence prevention workers whose job descriptions had nothing to do with anything online, found ways to get access to violent uh, networks on social media and use what they found in order to engage in in-person interventions. And so the people who are on the ground trying to solve these problems were miles ahead of where we were as researchers. And so part of that study was about learning from them what is it that they are doing. And so I think that 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 you know part of what happens here is that, you know, when we research things, we learn about them a little bit too late. Whereas practitioners who are on the ground, they have to adapt more quickly in order to serve the populations that they want to serve. And so I think that, you know, sometimes this may be the other way around. Where the you know the interns may be able to teach the professors a little bit about strategies on the ground more so than there being um, classes that are out there to um, to teach folks how to, how to um, systematically respond and 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 I want to say that 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 is part of what the when the hood comes off explores is it explores ways that young people are using technologies to engage in acts of resistance independent of their teachers, of their classes, of their institutions, that when they see institutions fail them, they're not waiting for there to be a program um, that that decides, oh, this is how we're going to respond to online racism, and instead that they're, they're doing it themselves.
0: In your opinion, should we speak of racism in the singular or racisms in the plural? What's the difference between how we refer to the phenomenon?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, I think that I have no problem referring to racism in the singular, but I don't see racism as being um, kind of a, a only having one face. And so I imagine that the term "racisms" refers to different uh, expressions of racism. Um, and you know, I, and so I have no problem with people using that term, but I also don't think that racism needs to be limited right as if there's only one style of racism. That racism is a complex phenomena. That, you know, it, it, it takes place across the globe in different contexts. Um, and I think that whether we use racism or racism, it's important for us to to think critically in complex ways about ra- how racism may look different, um, given the different contexts. You know, whenever we're talking about racism, we have to understand the context that it's taking place in. Um, and, right, So one of the ways that I do that in the book is by looking at racism online, racism in person. What are the differences? What are the similarities? Um, and I right, I don't. I, I know that those two expressions, right, like expressions of racism, may be different online than in person. But that doesn't mean that those are two different racisms that um, you know would re- require um, us to to um, you know add a s to the end.
0: How is resistance on the internet similar to and different from resistance in offline settings? Does online resistance require different? ethical orientations, different strategies of implementation or different tools of engagement.
1: That's a great question. I you know, I think that the, the, right to answer that, um, I'll say right, so that I, I mentioned earlier that the most common way to respond to racial microaggressions is to not respond. And there are a number of reasons that are given for that, right? Folks feeling like they don't have enough time to respond. Folks feeling like they're not sure if what they just experienced was racism. So they'd rather not say anything people not wanting to offend someone and, and be seen as being too sensitive or too militant um, you know, people feeling like there could be negative consequences of their speaking out against racism. And online what what happens is you have part of you know the, the online tools uh, uh, bypasses some of these barriers to responding in terms of not feeling like you had enough time to respond online, you don't have to respond immediately. You can take your time. Think about how you want to respond, and then comment an hour or so later. And that that now that interaction is you're right know, does not have to take place in real time. It does not have to take place by someone that you're next to. It could be someone a thousand miles away in your own time. Once you've had, um, you know, a moment to separate yourself from the you know emotional response you're feeling, find some resources, find some sources that you can cite, add some links to your comment, and really say the thing the way that you want to say it. Um, also online in terms of, right, this fear of there being negative consequences, you know, Black folks and folks of color can experience violence um, when challenging racists in person. Online, they don't have the same fear of violence, that they, that there's a little bit more of a distance, but also they don't have to do it alone. I think that I've heard, right, in, in the interviews in this book and just in life, right, I've heard, you know, countless Black folks and folks of color talk about being in a classroom and something racist happens or something related to race excuse me, and everyone in the class turns their head to see their response. They're looking at the one Black person in the room to say, oh, what do you think about this? That can be a really uncomfortable feeling that makes folks want to stay silent. But online folks of color are less alone that there's a a community that people engage in responses to racism collectively in a way that uh you know re- reduces the individual burden that any person of color might feel for themselves because they know that there's someone else who's going to respond even if they don't um right and so I think that that, that when we right, um and, and what that right when you have these communal responses this also leads to a shift in the power dynamic Instead of feeling alone and feeling silenced, folks of color feel like, no, no, we have a voice and we can challenge this and we're going to make you feel uncomfortable with speaking out in problematic ways. And so that's a big difference in, you know, resistance online or resistance in person is that resistance in person seems to be more limited. Um, it's limited to the people who are in the room. It's limited to, uh, you know, perpetrators who are willing to listen, whereas online, Um, You have more people who are getting involved and you have this this perceived shift in power dynamics that makes um, folks of color feel like they are not silenced in the way that they feel they are silenced in many mainstream face-to-face environments.
0: What is the modern racism scale? What does it measure?
1: So I talk about the modern racism scale in chapter uh, two. Um, where I'm, I'm exploring masked racism, and um, you know. So I think uh, after the classic civil rights movement, when people, you know, people stopped being so open about admitting their racism, and the modern racism scale is a survey tool that was designed to measure racism when people would no longer. Right? If you ask, if you send a survey in 1940 and ask people, "Hey, are you racist?" You know, people would, people who are racist would feel comfortable saying, "Yes, I am." but in 1970 they were no longer comfortable saying yes i am so the now you you know the modern racism scale would ask questions like do you think black people are are getting too you know open or too aggressive in, in asking for equality? Or how would you feel about black people moving into your neighborhood? So there are ways to measure racism that is a little bit less explicit. And I think if we look at the item of the modern racism scale, nowadays we would feel like, oh, even these are a little bit too open that people know how to avoid being labeled racist by answering these questions the right way. And so really, the I, read, I talk about the modern racism scale as an example of how scholars and educators and activists um, use, you know, um, creative ways of of measuring racism in a world where people have stopped telling us when they're racist. Um, so we have to be able to identify racism, even when it's hidden, even when it's hidden beneath a mask. And so I think that's part of the work of the anti-racist is unmasking racism in places where it is hidden, where the people don't want you to know that racism is still Uh, You know, the the way the world works, even when it is no longer the law of land.
0: What, if anything, can be done to promote offlineization among teens and young people and vulnerable individuals? What, if anything, can be done to encourage reduction in Internet usage for the purposes of protecting oneself one's loved ones and one's family?
1: That is a really interesting question. Um, you know, as a parent, I want my kids to spend more time outside. And it's really funny for me, you know, and people of my generation to kind of laugh at at the differences where, you know, I used to be right during the summer, I would be outside all day, I leave in the morning with my bike, and I don't come home until I'm hungry at night. And, you know, there's no cell phones and my parents have no idea what I'm up to all day. And nowadays, right, my kids have phones and they've never been out of contact with me. <laughs> if they're leaving the house, they have to have their phones charged. Right. Um, so that I know that I can see the location and, and and where they are and be able to talk to them, you know, in an emergency or in just, a, a, you know, a moment of, of convenience. Um, And so I think that the world is a different place. And I and many parents struggle to find ways to make sure that screen time is somewhat limited. Um, I would not say that we need to cease all Internet activities in order to protect ourselves. And this is something, you know, this this actually relates to right again, the, the way that I opened when the hood comes off is talking about. Um, an experience with racism online, and I'm, um, you know, experiencing racism in an online video game. And what I did was I ended up taking off the headset so that I could enjoy the video game without being called inward in my headphones. Um, so I disconnected from the online environment. Um, but but what I found in the book, something that was surprising as I was writing the book, is that you know many of the young folks of color that I interviewed throughout the book did not take their headsets off when they experienced racism. They did not choose to disengage, and instead they fought back. And I think that the you know the internet offers us many tools for resistance, and I don't think that I would want people to stop using those tools just because um, they may see or experience racism online. I think that racism is a reality in our world, whether we are online or in person. And I think that, you know, the the more that we unmask it, the better we're gonna be at building, you know, um widespread coalitions against racism. And so I think I, you know, I I would encourage folks to be well rounded and to not live only online, but then I also Um, You know, I'm eager to continue to learn from and benefit from, you know, from, you know, activists or regular ordinary people who are using online tools and communication to, you know, uh, uncover and challenge racism in, you know, uh, um, ways that, that I cannot always anticipate, but I do always appreciate.
0: How can the legacies of previous generations of activists such as Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin? Be applied to the online world.
1: That is a great question. So I think that right, I, I talk about um, um, both of those folks in the book um, because right, both Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin were huge. We uh, um, had huge influences on the classical civil rights movement, but they right until recently this is starting to change. But to, for the most part, they are not talked about in the history books. In the history books, the attention goes to Martin Luther King. And really Ella Baker was responsible for, you know, decades of training, um, you know, black organizers in a way that, that right, like without, without, that, without that network of black organizers and activists, you don't have the civil rights movement. Bayard Rustin is someone who, um, you know, was, you know, was part of the, one of the creators of the nonviolent strategy. That Dr. King used and also wrote a, a good part of what Dr. King said. And right, Ella Baker is a black woman and Baird Russ is a gay black man. And so I think that 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 you know marginalized folks have had to take the back seat in our movements in the past. And I think one thing that's important about the movement today is that, you know, marginalized folks, gay folks, queer folks, women of color, black women are the leaders, are the center. Of our movements and right, this right the notions of intersectionality and understanding how anti-black oppression um, intersects with you know homophobia and sexism is central to our right the movement for Black Lives and I think that that is a huge difference and um, right in the kind of the mainstream acceptance of of marginalized groups within our movements. Um, but it, right uh, is also, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, they also provide lessons for us and how to organize that the Ella Baker model of social change is not just about creating the speech that someone gives. It's about, um, you know, training everyday people to have the capacity to work and organize for change to plan uh, movements instead of, you know, just relying on magic moments.
0: What role do musicians play? in combating online racism. Can you tell us about some of the musical artists who have made their voices heard regarding this reality?
1: Oh, that is a great question. Uh, I have not heard many music artists combat online racism specifically, but I do talk some about um hip hop in my book, right? I am a, I am a hip hop lover. Um and I, you know, I learn from and enjoy teaching from you know um, you know some hip hop artists in some of my classes, so one you know one of the stories I tell is about seeing a video of people at a Kendrick Lamar concert, and a, and seeing a crowd of hundreds of thousands of white folks chanting the N word along with Kendrick, and how uncomfortable I felt and how I wondered whether Kendrick also felt uncomfortable, um, and then later I talk about right a um, um, Kendrick stopping a white fan from rapping the N-word on stage a few years later. And I just wondered what led to the change, what made it so that he felt like, um, you know, he lived with white folks changing the N-word in one situation, but not in another situation. And did it take time for him to strategize, okay, how can I knit this problem in the bud and, 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 and stop this from continuing? Um, then I also talk about, you know, some Vince Staples lyrics that seem to, um, provide a little bit more information about what it feels like to be a musician, a black musician, and have folks in the crowd who right, are, are engaging in the music in a way that you might find problematic and hurtful. Um, and so, I do use hip hop in order to right to to ask some of these questions. And I think that you know rappers, are, you know, are, are are poets. They're musicians and poets, and they're artists who tell the truth about society. We may not be able to see, and I do think that often we we can we can learn from hip hop um, and from the way that, that 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 folks think about and respond to racism, right in in their own rights. And so, even if they're not necessarily talking about racist comments, I think that they're talking about racism in a broader sense, um, and really telling you know telling stories and using you know, um, visual language that, uh, that, that, that can allow us to, to see racism from a different light or to feel more empowered or even to, you know, to, to be able to have access to an anthem that is going to, you know, um, um, empower folks who are engaging in, in social action for change. Your book spans
0: Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, and New York. Can you compare and contrast the contextual differences between these settings? Are the phenomena you're discussing in your research uniform across these different settings? Or is there something unique about Atlanta's situation vis-a-vis New York's, or Chicago's vis-a-vis Boston's, or Los Angeles' vis-a-vis the other cities?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, right, I, the study started in Chicago. And the reason I expanded it was to make sure that the things I was finding was were not unique to Chicago. Um, and so the school, I was, uh, you know, I, I, right. And so, uh, you know, I guess we haven't talked about the methods and when hood comes off um, just yet, but right. Um, you know, I, I did interviews with students at, at in those five cities you just named. And then I also have A host of data from social media that I analyzed, both in terms of looking longitudinally and then also looking at them um, excerpts uh, um, qualitatively, Um, and and so right when I when I was recruiting students from other schools, um, I chose schools that were that were different from Chicago, and so the school in Atlanta um, was you know uh, um, more than half black, and so this is a different environment than this one Chicago where. Um, which was a majority white school. And then the school in Los Angeles was a Hispanic-serving institution. And so this, right, again, a different demographic from either Atlanta or Chicago. Um, And the schools in um, New York and Boston um, were uh, private and also predominantly white. And so by looking at schools in different settings, I was able to see, you know, uh, um, did the setting dictate um, the findings. And what I found was, you know, a lot of consistency between sites in terms of what I was looking for, which are similarities and differences between online communication and face-to-face communication. And so I think that a lot of the processes that I described were consistent across interview sites, even though the, you know, the 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 settings and the the context were very different. The the campus settings, I mean.
0: Can you explain
1: what you mean by microaggression? Many people assume that they
0: know what it means, but they might not understand it in the context intended in your research. Can you describe how the internet and social media exacerbate the problem of microaggression?
1: Yeah, so microaggressions are subtle racial slights that communicate inferiority, or uh, right? So they're, they're, they're subtle ways of being racist, where it's not overt enough for someone to call you racist for engaging in a microaggression, but they still do harm. Right. So one of the examples I gave earlier in the interview was this idea of right, a, uh, an overt racist way of saying we don't want black people on campus would be to put up a sign that says no blacks allowed. A subtle microaggressive way of saying we don't want black people on campus is to keep on asking black people for their ID when they're on campus, which lets them know that they're not, you know, that, that they're not wanted here. And if you are like a, a, a microaggression that is common for uh, Asian and Latinx folks in the U.S. is to say things like, oh, your English is so good. You may be talking to someone who, you know, has, their family has been in America for generations, but you assume that they are a foreigner because of their race. And so that assumption is a microaggression where it can come from someone who doesn't hate. They don't mean harm, but it is still doing harm regardless of their intent. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think online, I, I wouldn't say that microaggressions online um, are worse than microaggressions person. But one of the things I found is microaggressions online can be easier to identify and respond to than microaggressions on person. Because all of these, uh, you know, kind of ways that subtle racial slights slide beneath our racist radar, if you will, they don't slide under the racist radar Um online because more people see them, more people are willing to respond, and that, right, that they right—that they may be more likely to be resisted, um, to be unmasked as being problematic ideologies. And I think that's hugely important because when microaggressions go unchecked, unchallenged, people begin to see them as being normal. This is just the way that the world is. This is There's nothing problematic in what we just said. And so when we, um, um, you know, online, when folks challenge them, it stops the reproduction of these ideas. Uh, is being seen as just a regular, everyday part of society that does not need to change.
0: Who have been the most important voices speaking out against racism on the Internet?
1: You know, I am intentional about not studying famous people. I am intentional mm-hmm. about not looking for the most powerful voices. I do talk about the right how some of the most powerful voices are bigger hubs for information sharing than our mainstream journalists, which I think is hugely important in showing us how social media can bypass gatekeepers. But by and large, that what I want to do in the book is look at how everyday people talk about and understand race and racism online. And I think that um, my purpose in doing that is to show that we don't have to be famous. You don't have to have a big following in order to make a difference. That I, I do want to to emphasize and center everyday normal people who are engaging in conversations in their own social networks that are changing the world. How does your research recontextualize President Donald Trump and
0: his time in office? In what ways is he anomalous in the history and sociology of racism? In what ways is he commonplace in the history and sociology of racism?
1: Well, he's commonplace, and I think, you know, it's funny to me that that Donald Trump is seen as being so racist. um many people you uh, right attribute Trump with being racist, but his policies are not very different from conservative policies. he's he's not unique in his political ideology. He is unique in his communication style that he is a little bit, less careful about the way that he talks about race. And that is what leads people to call him a racist. Um, you know, I think it, like I, I saw a quote where, you know, an actress, Jennifer Lawrence said that she was a conservative until Trump. Trump did not change conservative policies. Conservative policies were the same before and after Trump. Trump just, you know, allowed people to, you know, right, unmask the ways that conservative policies are tied to racist ideas a little bit, right? Made that unmasking a little bit easier for folks. But I think that is what is unique about him, is that he decided not to do what most conservatives do um, had done in the years past, and use coded language to refer to racial issues. And instead, he was open with it, and people appreciated it. And I think we're seeing the legacy of Trump now, um, where there are, there are more politicians who know that they can, they're going to get more, uh, you know, donations when a, when they're a little bit more brash in their language about issues of race or gender. That right, that they, they may get more media coverage, they may get more votes, and they are deciding to, you know, uh, um, step away from the the traditional ways that conservatives would would act and speak, which is to, you know, hide their racism and just use a dog whistle to to let the racists know, hey, vote for me, I'm the racist candidate, right, or I'm the candidate that's going to, you know, keep things the way they are and not let these. Um, you know, marginalized groups come and take what's ours. And so I think that that is a, a, a big part of Trump's legacy. And then I also think that the way that it relates, right, the, one of the things I talk about in the book is that one, Trump built a lot of his following online on Twitter. And two, the, a lot of the language that was seen as being so unique and so different than political norm is the type of language that was, you know, the racist language that was um, everyday and commonplace online. And so I think that part of what Trump did is he took the online um, kind of more, more, you know, harsh and hostile way of speaking about race and racism and brought that to the mainstream by using that same language he would use on Twitter at a campaign speech. What does the term
0: Y-P-I-P-O spelled W-Y-P-I-P-O mean? How is it utilized?
1: Yeah. So um I talk about this in chapter six when I'm when I'm engaging in the discussion of double sided consciousness. Um white people is a creative spelling for the term white people. And it was used right It was used in part to um you know bypass um you know kind of Twitter moderation where if you talk about white people in a certain way, you could get banned or your tweet could get deleted by saying white people they were kind of sneaking under the radar, and it was the means by which you know, black folk and other groups of color were discussing whiteness and the problematic ways that, that, uh, you know, white supremacy impacting their everyday lives by using the term white white people to refer to white people.
0: Can you tell us about some of the family members of yours that you allude to in the book? You allude to your three children, your sister and your brother-in-law. What can their personal experiences teach us in what ways are their lived experiences revelatory of the phenomena that you describe in this research?
1: Yeah, you know, my, my kids teach me about technology every day, where they're consistently doing things that I did not know were possible. They tell me about trends before, you know, I I, um, I know about them. Um, and then, you know, I think as someone who studies online abuse, I have been very careful about you know, do they have access to, you know, I don't, I don't want people to be able to, to you know, to yell first at them. So, for example, when I play video games, I know how to change the setting on the video game console to make it so that strangers cannot talk to them. Excuse me, but my, you know, my my um, oldest who has a VR headset um, found it right, he was hearing racist languages playing VR online. And I was astounded because I didn't know that chat was a function on these VR games, it's like this is an example of me learning something from him. And so I think that you know what my kids teach me is that the world is evolving. And even for someone who studies online racism, you know, for, for the day job, like I do, that it is evolving in a way that is fast for me to keep up with and so right for for parents who are worried about these things you don't have to be an expert you just have to be able to maintain a you know an open relationship with your kids where they are you know talk to you about the things that they're experiencing that's what i try to do with my kids um you know and so i do i do talk about them i have several examples of stories with them one of my favorite is um you know, taking my kids to the first protest um during the pandemic and we were with my sister Reese, my brother-in-law danny um and we you know we we went to a protest as a family activity and it was a huge learning moment for my kids. They were, you know, able to engage in, in fighting for social change and they also learned from seeing the people around them and reading the signs that were, you know, the, that were being hoisted and, and and coming to a better understanding of the world and, and, and what injustice looked like and, you know, what we as ordinary people and citizens can do um, in order to fight that injustice.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, Can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you been working
1: on? Can you tell us about some of your subsequent endeavors? Of course, of course. So what I'm um, most excited about right now is I uh, um, have, have made a short film called Choose Your Own Resistance, which was shot in 360 degrees. Um, for use in virtual reality. And it is a film that picks different ways of responding to racism or not responding to racism and explores the, the you know, the causes and, and consequences of responding or not responding to racism. And, you know, I, I made this as, you know, something that I want to be both art and intervention. We're, right, it is a film, and and um, but it is something that I'm also going to study, and you know, look at the physiological responses to racism and resistance, right? That that, that you know, people who um, take part in testing the intervention, I'll you know have them wearing heart rate monitors, and we'll, we'll be right. We'll be checking to see whether um, you know there's, there's different levels of stress and different scenarios, and the hope is. You know, because I think one of the things that comes out of the book is that online people feel much more comfortable and empowered by the types of challenging races that they see. And I want to find ways to empower people to challenge racism in their everyday lives in person. So that's what what we're doing with this short film, this intervention is finding ways to, you know, uh, engage in, in in conversations about how we can challenge racism in our everyday lives. Which is my hope for everyone who reads the book. When the hood comes off, racism and resistance in the digital age is how right. I want us to leave. Um, with a with a better understanding and more confidence that we can be agents of change and that we can challenge, um, you know, the dominant systems that have been oppressing folks uh, for generations. Thank you. I'm very grateful for all the wisdom you shared with us in this dialogue,
0: and for all of the sacrifice that you went through to make this book a reality for the benefit of all your readers.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. I appreciate you reading the book and then and you know, engaging with me in such a such a thoughtful way. So this was a great conversation. I'm super glad to be here. It was my honor. Thank you. Thank you. I, as we end today, I'm signing
0: off by reminding you that I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books and African American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Rob Eschman. He is Associate Professor at Columbia University's Department of Social Work. Today we've been discussing his recently published book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age, published in Berkeley by University of California Press, 2023. Thank you.